Good morning. Can you all hear me? Am I coming through? So the doctrine of hell. Uh, today we will be in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 42. Uh, let, let's stand in honor of God's word as we read this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. Let it, let it pierce our hearts and souls this morning. Let your spirit speak to us. Let it change us. Let it mold us into your likeness. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So, the, uh, the doctrine of hell, it, uh, it, has been, it has been used throughout many years, centuries, uh, as a warning to the wayward, right? Uh, you better change your ways, you're going straight. You know. um, I often joke with people around me and say, you know where liars go? Uh, pointing down further. And, uh, but in some areas, it has been used to abuse the saints. Right? It's been used in, in very harsh ways. Uh, it's, been, it's been used to discount the Christian faith. Right? Do you believe in hell? Like, really? Like, are we beyond that? Haven't we risen to this higher level of knowledge? Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're anti-intellectual, you know, if we believe in hell. Uh, we are trying to form some theological dictatorship that will, that will force you to do the good thing. You'll be a good person so you won't go to the bad place. I mean, how could a good God send someone to hell anyway, right? If he's good, why would he even create such a place? Why would he create people for that place? And as in Romans 9. If God loves us, he won't let anybody go there. I mean, after all, he's a father. We're all his children. Maybe he'll spank us for a million years or something like that and torment us, but eventually we'll all get there. 
Maybe some of you are familiar with the book Love Wins, where this assertion is made, and the assertion is made by word studies, not context. Context of the Bible is everything. Um, to some people, you know, hell is just a superstition. I tried to get Jesse to stand up here beside me in a little red suit with a pitchfork, and he wouldn't do it. Um, no, I'm kidding. I didn't, I didn't do that. <laughs> there would have been elder discipline if I had. <laughs> but, uh, but why is there a hell? Why? Have you ever thought about that for a second? Why is there a hell? There's a heaven. Why can't we just all go there? We could, we could talk about Genesis 3, but first we have to understand that God, He is the penultimate reality of the universe, right? He is holy. Yes, He is love. But His love, His grace, His mercy, His long-suffering, and his anger and his wrath. They are all bathed in his holiness. Not the other way around. He has holy love. He has holy wrath. He has holy long suffering. Right? So we have to understand that first of all, God is holy and pure. He will not tolerate sin. He is just. Who would let Hitler off? What kind of judge would let a man like Hitler off? Or Stalin? Or a man who has done unspeakable things to children? What kind of judge? Would you say that's a good judge? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. I would not say that's a good judge. So God cannot let the sinner off was just like, okay, look, you didn't, uh, maybe you didn't have your seatbelt on. I know you were going 95, but I like it, so I'll just ride up with the seatbelt. No, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. If we look at Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 32, and then 2 through uh, 2, uh, verse 1 through 8. Though they knew God, God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
He will render it each according to his works to those who by practice and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The torments of hell are real. Now, if you are a, a Christian, if you are a believer, please hear me. You are secure. If you have your face fixed toward Christ, you hate your sin. You are safe from these torments. You may, um, you may hear these threatenings and, and, uh, and pray, you know, thank you. Thank you that I, I, I'm not part of that. We have to remember that inside the covenant is safety. Outside the covenant, not so much. Not so much. It is, it is very clear in Scripture. I hope that today we will be encouraged to um, hate our sin, number one. Um, and, and be reminded to kill it in order to live in peace with, with other men. Now, um, last week, uh, we, we, we learned that, you know, Christ had to rebuke the twelve. You know, they were arguing over who was, gonna, who was the greatest, right? And so Christ... Kind of has to, kind of has to get their attention. Like, hey, this is not how this works. I mean, we're talking about the same Jesus who, at the Last Supper, is going to essentially the the let me let me let me contextualize this for you. He he gets down to his underwear and he washes the disciples' feet. Christ is your savior servant. If you don't know him as your savior servant, you may not know him at all. Because he is meek and lowly and humble in heart. Now, um, in, in thinking on this, he basically he basically has to rebuke them and and kind of call them out on their pride. Now, I want us to think about that for a minute. These are Christians, right? So, how many times have we seen this from Christians? How many times have we seen the de-churched and unchurched totally put off to Christianity because of us? Because we are so self-absorbed. I mean, look, I'm a PK. I've heard the most bizarre, I have experienced the most outlandish church arguments. It, it, it is almost... If it wasn't so sad, it would be laughable. From the color of a pew to the carpet to the hymnal, I mean, name the argument. It is absolutely embarrassing. It's embarrassing. 
Anybody experienced anything like that? No? I'm the only one? All right, great. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to call you to testify. Um, the, ch- the church is called to live in peace with each other so that Christ gets much glory so that we can live in peace with one another. And then people outside the church go, wow, those people, they really love each other. And they're caught up in the love that we share. Now Jesus takes this example a little further. Like he's, he's really trying to get their attention. And so he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble... It would be better if a great millstone were hung around his neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now, um, this is after he takes a little kid in his arms and there are some commentators that believe that this was one of Peter's children. Okay? So, I I wasn't there, but it's kind of a neat footnote. Um, But he basically says, hey, look, if you receive... A lowly servant, this child, then you receive me. It's like receiving me. But if you cause one of these to stumble, the fragile faith of a new Christian, someone who's being drawn, it would be better for you to have a millstone and someone chunk it out in the ocean and you're going along with it. (laughs) That's... That's, that's not what you want to hear from Jesus, right? You don't want him to look at you and say that. So, we look at, we look at this example and we see that we as Christians should love. We should take care of the lowly. We should teach, uh, be like over-shepherds. We should disciple. He's trying, to get the, he's trying to get the disciples, look, you're worried about your place in this mythical army I'm about to, about to go overtake, the Rome, overtake Rome, which is not going to happen, by the way. You're worried about your place, your seat at the table, how awesome you are. All these dudes were rejected by the temple. They weren't a first-class A team of winners. They were... Tax collectors, zealots, fishermen. They weren't the A team. They were the Z team. So he basically implies, look, you're full of selfish ambition, and this is only going to lead you and everybody around you straight to hell. And we know that one doesn't repent. Judas, he never gets rid of his selfish ambition. He holds on to it. He loves it. So let's talk about a millstone for just a second. Uh, anybody have a millstone at their house? Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, a millstone was used and is still used. Uh, I mean, you can make olive oil, you can crush uh, wheat, barley, all kind of crazy stuff. And there are even um, small handheld ones, right, that you can use at home. Um, but there's also some that you can't use at home that you wouldn't have ran down to the local Jerusalem Walmart to buy and bring home. Uh, Because they were anywhere. So when Jesus says a great millstone, 
He is speaking of a millstone that is anywhere from 100 pounds to over 1,100 pounds. Huh? I mean, you better hope they're using some really trashy rope and you got a knife because you're not coming back from that, bro. You're, you're, you're done. It was a practice, this, this practice of, uh, and Jesus isn't just making up some example. Like this was an actual practice. The Romans would execute people like this. This was real. This wasn't some example Jesus just pulled out of his, hey, right here, hey, right here. The Romans, like, um, what's his name? Um, there was a Judas, uh, the early zealot leader Judas, the Galilean, he was executed this way. So when Jesus uses this example, the disciples knew exactly what he was talking about because they had seen it or heard about it being done. So to a Jew, they're, they're, back then they were kind of like us, you know. Um, they loved to display honor to the dead for funerals. Uh, you may have read in the New Testament where there were mourners. Some people would hire mourners to come in and cry. That's just so bizarre to me. Um, maybe they didn't have friends. I, I don't know. Um, but this is an abhorrent death. This is a grave warning. I mean, think about this. You're thrown into the sea. Your body is, you're not going anywhere. You're going to drown. You're still tied to this rock. So you just got this body floating in dead, dark water. Bloated. Fish coming and poking at your body. This is not the way that you want to go out. You know, we, we want to bury a person, you know, facing the right way and all that stuff. But to a Jew, this was, this was horrible. It's not that great sounding to us, right? Um, so this, this warning, I mean, think about this. Have you seen any cult leaders lately? It would be better for you to have a rock tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. See any cult followers? See any Christians? And I'm using quotation marks here. Embracing doctrines that are clearly, clearly a denial of what is top tier. That leads them to rebellion or legalism. And then teaching it. Leading others away from Christ, causing them to love law, gifts, or license more than the Redeemer. That's who he's talking about. So, check this out. Let's look at Matthew 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree that bears good fruit 
But a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Acts 20, 29, and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Revelation 20. I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The threatenings of God are real. For the false prophet. Let me ask you a question. If we are full of ourselves and we are arguing and backbiting and arguing for our place, how are we different than a false prophet? If we're causing strife, if we are, if we are pushing people out of the church because we love us and me, how are we any different? We're not. We are causing the lambs to stumble. And Christ says, it would be better for you not to have been born. That is sobering. <laughs> like that, that's not, that, that's, that is very sobering. How many have left the church because of us? Verse uh, 43 through 47. So he talks about cutting off parts of your body because it causes you to stumble. But here we also see clear talk of hell. This is such an unpopular like subject, right? I mean, how often do we hear sermons about hell anymore? Where the worm does not die. And that... Uh, he's talking... Jesus is talking about hell here, but... But if you go to if you go to Isaiah fifty one, uh, seven and eight, he says, "Listen to me, all you. Listen to me, you who are righteous. Um, excuse me. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law. Fear not for the reproach of man, nor be dismayed for the, his uh, for their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool." But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. So see, we hear that the enemies of God are fallen, and the worm is eating their bodies. But at some point, your body's going to rot, your skeleton, right? The worm dies, that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that that's the end. The, um, you know, there's, like I said, there's an argument out there now, and it's not really a new argument, that, that hell is temporary, that at some point we all 
you know, we get our spanking and then we go to heaven, right? But, look, but that verse tells us a little something more. His righteousness is forever and his salvation is to all generations. So if salvation, the word salvation means eternal. So if God's righteousness is forever, then surely his punishments are forever. We read uh, Ephesians 2 at our call to worship. And in Ephesians 2, he says that he will spend eternity to display the glories of his grace upon the beloved. Nobody argues that. Like, have you ever heard anybody say, well, look, heaven is only like a billion years and then you turn into nothing. Nobody wants to argue that point. Nobody wants, you know, nobody wants to argue that. It amazes me that no one has ever, I've never seen the book discounting Ephesians 2 that talks about Christ display. Can you, like, we have no concept. Like, please don't tell me streets of gold. But, but like, we have no concept of, of what heaven is going to be like. I know everybody talks about angels singing and the big sing-along and all that, but we have we the level of joy that we experience here is not even a grain of sand for what's in store for the beloved. The reverse is true for the damned. The fire is not quenched. That's a phrase you don't want to hear. A few years back when, when Claire was a little girl, I got uh, grease spilt on my hand because I was careless and stupid. I don't recommend that. Uh, it hurt for days. I mean, it, it was one of the most intense pains I'd ever experienced. So I can't imagine my body forever and ever and ever and ever experiencing that. The word that Jesus use, uses here for fire is Gehenna. So, um, stay with me. Gehenna, the valley of the sons of Hinnon. Now you can win a trivia game. Uh, this was, uh, the valley of Gehenna was... Uh, a deep, narrow glen to the south of Jerusalem. Uh, back in Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles and Jeremiah, idolatrous Jews would offer their children in sacrifice to Molech. Who, who does that, really? Like, really? This valley became uh, a common receptacle for all the refuse of the city. Dead bodies, animals, um, criminals, and all kinds of filth were cast down this ravine. And it was said that the fire was always burning. The stench and the smoke was always rising. And I believe that God 
had this in place so that when Jesus rolls up on the scene, he can say the word Gehenna and everybody knows what he means. Oh, the place where dead bodies are thrown and the fire never stops. The stench never stops. There are some other passages that uh, help us understand this a little more. Uh, Matthew 25, 43. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will also also, uh, answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them and saying, truly, I say to you, As you did not do this to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Job 21.20 Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Matthew 26.24 Let tells us that it it would have been better For Judas never to have been born. That's not exactly what you want on your epitaph. Scott Bonner. It would have been better if he'd never been born. Period. That's that's not not what you want. That's not... um, Probably one of the most uh, famous passages uh, is Luke 16. Alright. So a rich man... It was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day at his, uh, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried to the angels, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger into the water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order for those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send someone to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may be warned so that, they may, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Men have tried for for years and years and years and years and years to make these verses 
say something totally different than what they say. There is no other inter- interpretation. The torments of hell are eternal. Um, as a side note, if you, if you enjoy listening to audio, uh, I highly commend you to download the app Sermon Audio. Uh, you can listen to Spurgeon sermons. You can listen to all kinds of guys. You can also listen to Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards had um, uh, a sermon called The Torments of Hell. Um, you don't want to listen to it when you're sleepy. Um, but uh, the Puritans were very notorious for not leaving any stones unturned. Uh, and he does not in that sermon. I highly recommend that to you if you're, if you're really curious even further about this. Um, Revelation 14. And another angel and a third followed them and sang with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath. Now check this out. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. It would be better for a millstone to be cast into the sea and tied around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What's better? Well, we are living sacrifices, right? Paul tells us. I mean, these verses are very sobering. I hope they are. Um, But Paul tells us, if we do not repent and turn to Christ, the wrath of God remains on us. If we have turned to Christ and repented and live a life of repentance, then we are safe. Christ absorbed the full wrath of God on the cross for us, for all those who will believe. But if we, if we do not, if we do not repent in this life, then we will experience this. And after a thousand ages have gone, and you're exhausted, and you've had no rest day or night for endless ages, you will still have a million more ages to go. A billion, a trillion, a quintillion. It never will end. So when, Christ, so when Christ tells us to start cutting off parts of our body, that, I mean, it, it's a little jarring, right? You know, it, uh, the, these verses have caused a lot of confusion over the years. Uh, there was a guy um, named Origen of Alexandria, and um, he was struggling with this whole lust thing and so he thought that hey if I get rid of my manhood 
That'll do it. Well, it didn't. Uh, so that wasn't a real smart move. Um, the Council of Nicaea outlawed this practice uh, because people would. They, they, would uh, they would amputate parts of their body because they took this literally. Christ is not after us to mutilate ourselves. If that seems strange to you when you read this, that's because it is. He's not literally telling you to, to gouge your eye out. Oh, she's pretty. Oh, I can't look at her anymore. That, that's not what he's telling you to do. It's, it's not. Jesus is calling us to have the circumcision of the heart. Paul tells us in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's wanting things that you think will make you complete. You worship them. You've got to have them. On account of these things, the what? The wrath of God is coming. Not His displeasure. His wrath is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Slander. Obscene talk from your mouth. It amazes me how cool it is for Christians to curse, man. Just being real with you. Well, in reality, you're a depraved sinner going straight to hell. (coughs) Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, hearts. What is he trying to get the disciples to do? Kindness. What is he trying to get the disciples to do? Humility. Were the disciples uh, humble? Meekness and patience. Bearing with one another and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything in the peace of Christ. I'm sorry, which binds everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which is indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. What are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? But what are we ultimately thankful for? If we're not ultimately thankful that Christ has resurrected us from death, saved us from these torments. Everything else is temporal. Everything else is going away. This is the ultimate thing we are to be thankful for. But we're to be thankful for everything. Don't get me wrong. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It's a beautiful verse. I love Colossians 3. So, you ready to cut your hands off? Pluck out your eyes? Well, that's how it's done. You say that the, you, you, you put off the old self. The robe of Christ clothes you. And now, oh, you used, to, you used to lie because you wanted people to worship you and think better of you? Well, then stop and, and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Encourage one another. Oh, you used to steal? Well, then make a good living so that you can help someone who's hurting. Oh, you used to, to chase every chick in town? Well, stop that. Marry a woman and love her like Christ loved the church. That's how it's done. You're a new creature if you are in Christ. John Owen, one of my favorite uh, Puritans. Christ, by his death, destroying the works of the devil, procuring the spirit for us, hath so killed sin as to its reign in believers, that it shall not obtain its end and dominion. You are set free, Christian. When sin is whispering in your ear, you don't have to obey it. You're free not to. Another great Owen quote. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work to always be at it whilst you live? Cease not a day from its work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. John Owen. Paul tells us to kill our flesh. Give it no quarter. Don't, don't feed it. Don't feed it. Um, and that's, that's how we kill it. I mean, who, who in their right mind would, um, if, if you knew that you had a cancer and all you had to do was not feed that cancer, it would go away. Who, who would inject sugar into that cancer to make it grow? Nobody. Seems kind of silly, doesn't it? And yet we do that. <laughs> and yet we do that. So down in uh, verse, uh, verse 50. Uh, this, these, this verse here can be kind of confusing. Salt is good, but it's the salt. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, let's do 49 as well. Uh, for everyone would be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its saltiness, uh, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Uh, the salt that they made back uh, where they made it then was kind of from the marsh. It wasn't from the sea. So it could lose its saltiness. So regardless if it's lost its taste, if you throw salt out onto the grass, what's it going to do to your grass? It's going to kill it. It's going to kill it. 
You're going to walk out, and your dad's going to be like, you killed my grass, boy! You know, uh, it, it destroys. It destroys. It's, it's, it's not good for anything. You can't preserve meat. You can't season the meat. You throw it out, it even kills your dang grass. It's good for nothing. Don't lose your saltiness. He's begging us. Don't do it. We are all salted with fire. Christian, let me say this. This is as close to hell as you're going to get. This life. For the non-believer, this is your heaven. This is it. This is your heaven. This is as good as it gets? Are you kidding me? The fire in these verses, of course he's using Gehenna, but everyone's salted with fire. So Christian, in this life, you're salted with trials. In hell, you're salted with fire. The salt represents, uh, I know everybody says it's seasoning, and it is, it's preservative, it is seasoning. However, there's another meaning in this that you're not going to get by just reading. Leviticus 2.13 tells us that every sacrifice must be offered with salt. That, is the, that signifies the perpetuity of God's covenant with his people. Every sacrifice had to be presented with salt to remind them God's covenant is not going away. It's preserved. It flavors our lives. Okay? We will, be, uh, we will be the salt. We, Christian, we will be the salt that accompanies Christ's sacrifice in this world. And so, if we, if we aren't that salt, again, what good are we? And if we don't, then uh, if we're not Christians, then obviously we, we have all that other stuff we read about to look forward to, uh, which doesn't sound very fun. The church is here to preserve and flavor, not to destroy. If we turn to Christ in humility and in need, if we repent and believe his gospel, if we let his spirit lead us in peace, then we will live in peace with one another in the church. I'm not talking about the world here. We're never going to live in peace with the world. Don't misunderstand me. Psalm 1611. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. One of my least favorite is in Hebrews. And it says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I, I beg you, if you are here today, and you are not a believer, don't fall into the hands of the living God. He is, he is giving us an opportunity. Christ 
took on the millstone of hell on the cross. He endured separation, the agonies of the wrath of God to win you back, to win me back. So that we can enjoy Him forever in unimaginable joy. Inside of Christ is peace. Through trials, though trials we have, I mean, we're going to have them. But I just, I just want to remind us that John says we will see Him. We will see His face because we shall be as He. Christian, I, I hope that these verses where Christ is calling us to live in peace with one another, where He is calling us to mortify our flesh. He's done it. Christ has done it. He conquered it. He is a conquering King and He is seated at the right hand of God. It's done. He has won you. So celebrate that. Celebrate that. And let the Spirit of God destroy the sin that's in you. If we, if we do sin, we have the gospel. We have the words of truth that we can come to Him. We don't have to come in shame. We can come to Him and ask Him to forgive us. And He's like, yeah, of course. You're my son. You're my daughter. Of course I do. I love you. He is not frowning at you, Christian. He is smiling. Father God, we ask that you would let your spirit allow us to see Christ as as more beautiful than ever before. Remind us that the, that the torments of hell are real. But the beauties and the glories and the tremendous joy in heaven are just as real. We will have you. We are yours and you are ours. Allow us to Repent and believe the gospel today. Allow us to truly, truly love and trust you this morning. We ask this in your beautiful name, in your strong name. Amen.